Hey, Denver, it's Bree. We've got a little something extra for you this weekend. Recently, I was a guest on Bird Talk, the Metropolitan State University of Denver's alumni podcast. We talked housing, homelessness, art, my non-traditional college experience, and a whole bunch of other Denver stuff. It was a blast. Jamie was super cool. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I'm Jamie Hurst, and for the MSU Denver Alumni Association, we're excited to bring you Bird Talk, a podcast about our alumni, their careers, and their lives. I gotta say the word tit wrench. You know that they didn't, they weren't, we weren't allowed to say it on the radio for like the first five years of the festival when we were on Radio 1190. Is it a wrench for tits, or is it a wrench made of tits? Well, Bree, thank you so much for joining us today. Today, our guest is Bree Davies. She is a 2007 alum, earning her degree in journalism. Since leaving MSU Denver, she has exploded as one of the most influential voices in Denver. Heard Around Town currently honor award-winning podcast, CityCast Denver. Bree is by trade a multimedia journalist, artist advocate, and community organizer, born and raised in our city. Across all her endeavors, which include co-founding the experimental art festival, Tit Wrench, writing for Westward, hosting and producing Hello Denver, Are You Still There? with PBS 12, and the comedy show Sounds on 29th on CPT 12. You've done some political campaigning. Uh, you were the bassist for the Denver punk band Night of Joy. Wow. You're a very, very passionate advocate. So thank you for being here. Oh my gosh, Jamie, thank you so much. You're welcome. I tried really hard to find some sound bites from your band, but did you know they that don't I, exist. I know I deleted all of them. Oh, did you? Our uh, band imploded in the ugliest way possible. Ugh. And uh, the the fight came down to, I have, this is the only thing I have control over. And, and so, I deleted the whole thing. So we're out. So then. we exist uh, a little bit on YouTube, but mm. thank I you did, for finding that. I did. I looked for it. Well, anytime <laughs> I see that someone's a musician, I'm always like, I want to talk about that. I I'm the weird athlete that was born into a very musical family. So forced fed music, but <laughs> happily, like I was excited about it. It just didn't come naturally. So like, sure. I remember when there was piano lessons, my sweet piano teacher, Constance, um, which sounds exactly yeah, like, like you would imagine like, a piano like librarian by day and piano it, teacher by night. Totally. Cat um, lover. Uh, my sister, great, perfect, classically trained pianist. And I'm like, mm, I'm really good at like the beginner's book that was for the Christmas songs, Christmas Carol, you know, you Wayne Manger. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> I'm on it, you know? On the <laughs> exactly. Well, to be fair, I am like a punk musician and that sure. like, I don't read music or anything. And my husband is like, trained musician. I mean, he's a drummer that that's his main instrument, but he can play guitar. He can play piano. He wants to sing, but I told him he's not allowed to. Um, but that's what he, the shower is for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But like he can re I mean, he's a studio trained. He's just that kind of musician, like mm -hmm. your family. So I identify with you a little bit in that, like, yeah. I just kind of figured it out. Yes. That's cute. <laughs> so, uh, but no, but so glad that I got that right. And I'm glad that it was purposefully hard to find so that yes, it wasn't that it was not your my e-stocking skills your, are not there your internet sleuthing came to a dead end because of me so perfect well we're so happy to have you here on bird talk um i'll be full transparent super nervous about this you oh do my this gosh. I Don't just, nervous, I always joke that I'm like, I, this is my favorite part of my job. Get to hang out and talk to people. Because I get to bullshit for yes. an hour. And I am inherently the most curious human you you know. And so I know this much 
uh, about all things, but not enough about anything. And so you. this is like my dream. And then I'm like, oh, and I have to be professional this time. So no, you don't. I'm good. Perfect. You really don't. I'd rather you not be professional. People are usually pretty boring. Appreciate, so. appreciate it. Well, really, Bird Talk, uh, if you haven't had a chance to listen, really is just about exploring the alums that have come through MSU Denver, the paths that brought you here, the things you're doing now and giving a platform for the, the real reality that our alums are changing Denver, they're changing Colorado, they're changing the world. And so oh. when we think about who are those people and who are those voices that are so prevalent? You've been on the top of our list. For oh a my long God. Time. Can I just tell you too, that I was like so honored when you reached out because I was like, my last name was different when I graduated from here. Uh, my last name. sleuthing skills. Yeah. You know, yeah. so Davies is my pen name that became mm-hmm. my name. It is not my married name, but I thought no one is ever going to know I graduated from MSU. And like, this is like the proudest thing for my mom. Cause she went to school here as well. I remember seeing like my friends, like Ricardo Baca and Bobby Lefebvre on the posters and like the billboards. And I was like, I want to be that alum. So when you guys asked me to do this, I was like, I can finally show my mom. They recognize me. The school that we went to, our working class city college is alive and thriving and cares about what we do in the world. So, and, and not only cares about it, is so freaking proud of it. Oh my gosh. I'm so proud to be honestly, it's, it's, I just wanted to speak to that for a minute because you know, growing up here, Metro, as it was called when I went to school here, was a, kind of a small but mighty school. And it was kind of like people were not necessarily proud to go here in a way. And I, I don't say that to undermine any of the work that folks have done. Like I said, my mom went to school here when it was in a storefront on Colfax. But it took me years to understand how incredible it is that we have this college in the middle of our city that serves our city and our students of our city, as well as it's now become a thing that folks from out of state want to come to. That was not the case before. And I wasn't proud of it in a a way that I'm sort of regretful that I didn't get to enjoy these moments when I was on this campus. Like the King Center wasn't here yet. Okay. Like if you can imagine this building we're in right now was not here yet. The Tivoli when I was a kid was a mall. Being able to see how it's grown is like so incredible to me. And I'm, I'm a little bit annoyed with myself that I didn't respect it in the same way when I was a younger person, because it took me 10 years to get a four-year degree. And I never at any point here felt that I was lagging or I was behind. I was on my path, whatever that looked like. And people around me were on that same path, which means I was going to school with working moms. I was going to school with folks who were coming back to school after 40 years out of school. I was going to school with other 18-year-olds. And that's what made Metro really special to me. And so I just like think it's really amazing now to say like, we're kind of like a big deal. We are. You don't have to whisper that. You yeah, can say we're it loud. We're a huge deal. We're a and huge I'm deal. really proud to have uh, gone to Metro or MSU. It's whatever you want it to be for They you. tried to brand it as the Met when I was here uh, and everyone was like, nah. no. No, we're not doing that. You can put it on all the shirts you want. But yeah, all that to say, I just, I'm really proud to be uh, an alumni of the school. Oh, that's awesome. Well, we're proud to have you. Um, It's funny you mentioned the 10 years because I read, I think we did a story about you uh, a while back. Corey Fair, when actually I was talking with Corey the other day and I was like, yeah, I'm interviewing Bree. And he was like, oh man, he's like, when are you doing that? I got to be there. And I was like, great. He's a great journalist too. He is incredible. I was so impressed with how I just, I usually write about other people. Right. So when people write about me, it's very rare. And I was like, you made me feel so cool. 
Yeah. So thank you. Corey. Well, he's a very cool dude in general. The more oh, I yeah. get to know Corey, I mean, I mean he's he been works a colleague with here Gio. forever. He knows. Yes. He knows the DIY music scene inside and out. He does. It's so very cool. I was reading that article among other things that you've done across the path, and I came I came across the quote where you said it took me about a decade to get from start to diploma, and I think you're spot on. That is the story of a lot of our alums. Totally. Um, and it, but it made me think of uh, the old Volkswagen commercial when they redid the bugs. Do you guys remember that? Oh, so they re-released the I bugs, you know, and whatever that was ninety. Late 90s. 98, 99. It was was right when all the big truck commercials were out, and it was like, oh, the Dodge Ram, it goes zero to 60 (laughs) in 4.5 seconds. And then their commercial was just like the VW bug, zero to 60. Yes. Yes, we do. Well, and I'm (laughs) amazing you bring this up. My first car was a 73, I'm sorry, it was a 70 bus. My second car was a 73 Super Beetle. My family are huge Volkswagen folks, and I think um, there was a special ride when those commercials came out because we were like, oh, we're getting our second chance at like, although these are timeless classic cars, it's really cool that they did that. And what I loved about that commercial series was they used musicians like the Polyphonic Spree. Mm -hmm. And it was like a commercial that connected with me on a musical level as like a young person. Yeah. I think about MSU Denver in the same light where it's like, are you going to get a degree? Is it going to take you four years? We don't know. We're not going to judge you. From here to diploma. Yeah. We're here. Maybe you need to do stuff in between there. Maybe you need to find yourself. I had to get clean. I mean, I was an alcoholic. I had to figure that out before I could really, really face myself. And that was all the stuff that happened in between. And then I still graduated. Yeah. And, and doing so in a place where you still felt safe. And I think that's 100%. the thing that I, I admire most about this institution. I've been here 10 years, uh, started in a staff role, also picked up a degree, went back and oh, studied awesome. some uh, journalism courses and got a degree in public relations. I teach as a adjunct faculty member in one of the d- departments as well. And so I'm in all these different segments of populations. Sure. Uh, and what I've realized is consistent through all of it is like, there's no judgment in this. This yeah. is a safe space. It's a space that we actually not only don't look at what you're bringing in, we embrace what you're bringing in. We're, right. we're embracing your challenges, your backgrounds, your stories, whatever got you here, because we know that that's going to amplify the experience of the people that are around you. Yeah. Because everybody's watching everybody else. And when you see somebody who looks like you or has an experience like your experience, it reaffirms that you are in the right place or that you should be doing what you're doing. And it's, you know, we're all modeling all the time. Oh, absolutely. I think our, our statistics for our last graduating class, because they'll always give like the rundown, you know, of how many veterans we had, how many, you know, X, Y, Z, this, yeah. and that. But it was, I think the youngest graduate was 17 years old yeah. and the oldest was in their eighties. And a lot of colleges are very focused on the youth uh, aspect of college. And I honestly was not interested in that. I think. And that was part of the reason that this school really worked for me. It was like, I didn't care for a a traditional college experience. I wanted to hang out in my city and play in bands and go to school as well. And it worked for that. Yeah. And it gave you, it gave the avenues are available, which I think is wonderful. So let's talk a little bit about Denver. Obviously you do that for a living. I do. Born here, raised here, love it here. I'm sure there's things you love about the city. I'm sure there's things that are thumbtacks in your foot about the city. Um, I've been a fan of your podcast as Ruby has been. Um, shout out to Ruby who loves your podcast. Oh, thank you, Ruby. Um, I love that it's in bite-sized chunks, first of all, because thank I you. think it's just, it's the perfect commute from Westminster. I can listen to one episode. We really think about that sometimes. <laughs> We're like, are we over-promising? Are we under-promising? Sometimes it's 16 minutes, sometimes it's 40, but that's an but internal that's okay. turmoil we're having with our show that you don't need to know as a listener. <laughs> sure. <laughs> like what stemmed that? Like, so it, was it coming out of a place of like, I'm here, I've lived in the city. It's changing. I want to talk about that. Was it more focused on, gosh, there's problems. Let's address them. Let's vocalize them. Or just an homage to the place that we are. Well, first of all, I didn't apply for this job. 
it found me. I feel very fortunate to say that, but um, it wasn't until I was really deep into it that I realized I had been doing the thing that we're doing on the show just on my own. Um, but at the time I was in urban planning, this was like three, about three years ago, I'd taken a detour from journalism because I was exhausted from not getting paid enough money <laughs> and like having to have three other jobs. And I got this opportunity to work for an urban planning firm here in Denver called Progressive Urban Management Associates. It has the most boring sounding name. It was one of the most incredible work experiences of my life. In the front, so they do. They exciting. are, and they are. Yeah. Honestly, that's why they hired me. Right. I mean, I didn't have a planning degree, yeah. but my boss, Brad Siegel, um, bless his heart, was like, "You see something in the city that um, we need. We need your voice, and we need your experience to help us guide some of the planning work we're doing." And I got really fortunate. I was just so fortunate to fall into this work, and it was just better paid, and it was less stress. And um, our before it was cool. My boss really had an emphasis on mental health. Anytime you needed time, I mean. It was just like the perfect job for me. Mm -hmm. And I'd been doing that for about almost five years, probably. And my producer, Paul Caroli, who, if you listen to the show, you know his voice very well, too. He, I had been on his show, Changing Denver, a long time ago. And I also had a podcast called Hello Denver. Are you still there? And so we were both sort of in this realm of talking about Denver in different ways. Paul's very historical. He loves the long, the long game narrative, the thoughts about. Denver as an evolving place and where it has come from. And I'm more of a what's going on in the city right now on the ground level person. And so our perspectives really meet somewhere in between there. But he just reached out to me and he said, hey, I'm producing this new podcast about Denver and I want to know if you want to uh, think about being the host. And I was like, who gets paid to make podcasts? Right. <laughs> who gets paid in media, period? But who gets paid to make a podcast? I was like, sure, Paul, whatever. And so we kind of just chatted about it. And then he said, like, hey, could you, would you like be down for sort of an interview with our CEO who's overseeing this, what was going to become a network of cities across the country with these podcasts? And I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. I'll talk to this guy. I didn't, it was not a job interview to me. So I was very honest, which yeah. maybe was a good thing, yeah. but I would, didn't take it seriously. And then I had another interview and I didn't take that very seriously, but I was honest. And I guess when I say I wasn't taking it seriously, I wasn't approaching it as a job interview. Sure. You're not saying what you think they want to hear. Exactly. You're, you're speaking which kind of was like the best outcome, honestly. Mm -hmm. And then they said, Hey, would you send us six pitches of what you would do with this show? It's just like it's making me jump through all these hoops. I don't even know if this is a real job, whatever. And my friends were like, just, just try it. Just go for it, whatever. I gave them my pitches and then they were like, hey, send us a minute long audio of you. And I was like, go listen to my show, right. which I didn't listen to, by the way, myself. And I love Mutiny Information Cafe and Corey Healy, who helped put that whole network together. They didn't do any editing on it. So I can't imagine it sounded great, but I was just like, ugh, kind of just had a little bit of an attitude. Like, why do you need to ask me this? Like, uh, my work is out there. Go look at my work. And then I was like, fine. So I did a little one minute piece on the Parade of Lights and what I loved about it as a child. And then they were like, hey, so this is a real job and it's a salary and benefits. And here's the thing. And this is what you would do every day. And I was like, what? <laughs> Couldn't you have said that at the beginning? I, I might have cared more. I Right. But <laughs> right? it was good. It was yeah. perfect. And my husband was like, I was crying. I was like, yeah. I can't. Again, remember, I'm at my favorite job I've ever had. I don't want to leave. And this opportunity comes along and it's, I can't pass it up. No. I really can't. They offered me something incredible. And my own boss was like, go and do this. Yeah. And that's, I, I mean, we're still friends to this day for many reasons, but he was so supportive. And so 
I took the job and I took the opportunity and we genuinely did not necessarily even know what we were doing. We were creating a thing that has gone on to be modeled in nine other cities. Us in Chicago were the ones that launched. And we, as these two teams in our HQ folks, created the thing that became CityCast. And it was just filling what we thought was a hole, which is... People listen to some, if you're a podcast person, you listen to podcasts all the time, right? I'm a podcast person. There wasn't a local podcast filling that need. There's radio retrofitting its content for podcasts. And there are some publications taking their publications and putting them into a podcast form. But there wasn't anything that was a straight out podcast made from the ground up to be a podcast podcast, for podcast listeners. And that's how we created CityCast Denver. And it has continued to evolve if you've listened to the Mm -hmm. show quite a bit. At the base of it, it was just how do we talk about the city we love and be critical at the same time we praise it, be honest about how we feel and the changes that we see and how we see the change in ourselves reflected in the city. And that's the show we make every day. It's pretty great because it's just getting an opportunity to talk about the things that drive you. There's very rarely a topic that's covered in your podcast or in any sort of local space that isn't something that is relevant to every one of us. Right. Right. And so why not supplement your conversation at the dining room table with other perspectives that you hear in other places. And share information with folks. Um, Again, it's like we have an imaginary audience in our mind is who we like try to reach, but we don't really know who it is. And so in my mind, it's folks that have lived here their whole lives. It's folks that have lived here for 10 years. It's folks that have moved here during the pandemic. So how do we speak to all of those Denverites in a way that feels inclusive? Because we've talked about this a little on the show and I've written about it quite a bit, but there's a divide of the transplant versus native conversation, which is like, uh, gets us nowhere. It gets us nowhere. So how do we talk to everybody in a way that informs new folks, but reaffirms for old folks that they also still belong here? Yeah. So that's good. Yeah. It's as one of those transplants, right? I've been here 10 years. It's a weird dynamic when you first come. It's it's like, it's like, oh, and like we came in with our Iowa plates on our car and even just, (laughs) you know, just like, uh, I mean, you're brave. (laughs) Right. Which is stupid. I know, right? And so there's just so much of that where it's like, okay. And so you kind of downplay like where you're from, where you've lived, the other things. Because you don't want want people that have such a strong heritage and such strong commitment to this culture of being a Denverite and being a Coloradan to feel like, oh, I'm treading lightly on that. But at the same time, it's also like, guys, we're people. Right. We recognized the beauty of your state, the opportunity of your state, the way people are living. And I'm choosing to live here. I'm a grown-ass adult. I can go live wherever I want. Right. And also, maybe a lot of us, myself included, ended up here by chance. Right. So, I I mean, literally geographical chance. My dad is a military brat. This is where his family ended up. Mm -hmm. My mother's family came from Nebraska for something better. Yeah. That was just like you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Coming here for the same opportunities and the th- same things. I, I, it's like I, the dichotomy is so much deeper than those two experiences sure. rubbing against each other. And that's what I try to talk about a lot too, is I'm very proud to be from here because I've learned the history of what the folks that lived here before me did right. and what they continue to do. And so that's why I'm so, when people, I get so mad when people are like, oh, Colorado's is white people and craft brews and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, excuse me. <laughs> We're the epicenter of the disability rights movement in the seventies. We did incredible, incredible. We were the first place to have an independent living facility for people with disabilities, folks that were formerly institutionalized and locked away, that 
change where they got to live on their own independently in the way that most of us live was revolutionary. And that happened here. here. Yeah. And the Chicano civil rights movement, the farm workers movement, we were epicenters of that work too. And that's the stuff I like to bring to folks so that, again, you moved here 10 years ago. I want you to know that. Right. So you too can be like, man, this place is really cool. And I learned other reasons it's cool other than the reasons that brought me here. Sure. Right? Yeah, I think about that oftentimes for a lot of different states. Sorry, like, so I'm a Los Angeles native, right? So that is where I'm from, from LA. I'm always so- fascinated by people that leave the big cities that right? Denverites, honestly, 15 years ago, were scrambling to get to. Right. So like, you're like, get me out of here. I want to go to yeah. LA. And then I ended in the Midwest for graduate school and was like, oh, it'll be two years and I'll be back to LA. I haven't been back since I left. Then wow. it was a little bit more of a stretch in Iowa. And then we landed here, which is a perfect mix of yes. Iowa and California. It literally is like if That's you could so drop funny. the middle of Iowa and California, <laughs> like this is it. Like, cause you get the big city feel, you got the professional sport teams, you get music, you get out the culture, um, but you still have a little get bit of that wide open life. spaces too. You do, right? All the different places I've lived, especially as being like the California girl, which like yeah. there are a lot of things about me that are very California. There are also a lot of things that aren't now probably because I've spent my, the majority of my adult life But I also think you folks are complex people that get dismissed as <laughs> a certain era of LA, whatever you think Correct. of. Maybe you're a Valley girl. My best friend right. is like grew up in uh, LA as well. Yeah. She's lived here for almost 20 years. You would never guess until she starts talking about how she feels about the Lakers. Then you know. Yeah, correct, right? You know? Right. I, you talked to me, you mentioned the ocean, and I'm like, okay, I'm in. Like, right. Yeah, you're going to know Which I'm is the fully one California. Thing we definitely correct. are lacking. 100%. There's no water here. It's the only thing that bothers me. Um, but I, living in all these different places, like there's so many presumptions. And I think I've been slightly diligent, maybe not as intentional as I should be about learning all about the states that I've lived in. But same thing for me when I was in Iowa. I was like, oh, they're at the forefront of a lot of the civil rights movements that happen. Some of our most predominant civil rights cases that have talked about racial rights and all this stuff. Like, you're not thinking that. You're thinking Iowa, probably very conservative. Yes. And it's like, no, no, no. It's, it's actually, like one of those places that the GOP, you know what I mean? At right, the beginning right. of a presidential race. Right. Where do we got, go? Yeah, you've got Iowa. the straw poll, right? And so all these yeah. things, and you're thinking that it's that. And it's like, oh, God, no. Like, when we talk about education rights and civil rights that happen in education, that is Iowa. And I even laugh, like, when my wife and I got married, we had our ceremony in California, like, rights on the beach, sure. which was great. Illegal. Go back to Iowa where we're living. Legal. Wow. And so people sometimes be like, what? What? Like, why do you have two anniversaries? I'm like, oh, because our fake marriage out in California, <laughs> in California, right. was Supposedly not legal. Supposedly California. Iowa, one of the, the first state that passed legal marriage for same-sex people through the court system, had it before California had solidified it after all the proposition issues that they had. And people were like, oh, that's so, I would have never thought that. I'm like, right, because you're making presumptions about whatever you think uh-huh. of whatever flyover state. And but it's, it's like, also no. about what speaks to the people. Correct. Right. What do the people care about? Yeah, what do so the people want to are it, motivated by? I know I've, we talked about the V-dub or the Volkswagen <laughs> thing, but I think about the Nebraska commercial too. Have you heard that one? No. Oh, it's fantastic. It just shows all the fields and does all the stuff. And it just at the end says Nebraska, not for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> to me again, but, it, but that's just it where it's like, but know who you are. You can't yeah. expect to get the most out of the city or be um, benefited by that city, impact that city or state that you're living in until you realize who you are to know what you're bringing to the table to amplify things, right? Totally, totally. Yeah. And I just try to invite everybody to the conversation because that's what it, all conversations should be as inclusive as possible. Yeah. And we can't talk about Denver if we don't hear from multiple perspectives. Yeah. Like, again, I am just a second generation person <laughs> here randomly yeah. by chance. My friend Justine Sandoval, we have on the show quite a bit. 
she always says like, my family didn't cross the border. The border crossed us. We were in the San Luis Valley before it was America. Right. We are here. Or my friend Thad, who did one of those, uh, like the 23 and me's, <laughs> he is like his genetics place him in Denver. Mm. He is from this place in a way most people are not. And he doesn't go around touting that, but I, it, it makes me proud to think I know somebody whose family lineage knows this land better than I will ever know. Right. And I, all I can do is learn from that experience right. and read those stories and let them inform the pride that I have for the place where I live. Yeah. I think it's rad and I'm just super pumped and I still say rad. Never stop. <laughs> I do too. I never stop. My theory with um colloquialisms and slang is like stick to your age group and you don't sound so right. like sometimes when people my age are like, oh, I'm not gonna call anything fire or whatever. Yeah, I'm, I'm not gonna like, do that. <laughs> let's be honest, homie, don't play that. Like I'm in living color era. I know 100%. my place. You know what I mean? 100%. So yeah, I'm a rad person Perfect. as well. That's rad. Um, but I do think that it's great that it sounds like there's been a great combination and meshing of your passions, your interests, and with your skill set. It's the dream job I dream. didn't know existed mm-hmm. um, that someone would pay me livable wage to talk about my city. Yeah. And I do feel blessed in that I have always done what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I did not ever do anything I didn't want to do. And following that, just that's just how I live my life has brought me to this place where I have this opportunity. It was so funny. I was (laughs) was talking to my gangster tax attorney, Uncle Phil from Pueblo (laughs) Rules. He's a character in himself. I want to write a book about how amazing he is. But he said to me, he's been doing my taxes. He knows how much money I make. Mm-hmm. And he goes, Brie, you're finally getting paid for all the expertise that you have. Yeah. And I was like, thank, thank you, you, Uncle Phil. Thank you for seeing that. Thank you for, for reminding me that it didn't just come out of nowhere. Yeah. I did lay the groundwork for it by the work that I did that a lot of times was unpaid. And just because I cared a lot about something, mm-hmm. you know? And that's a tough path, especially when I think about talking to like young students or, you know, yes. that are coming through where it's like, ah, like art, the nineties, eighties yes. child, nineties child mindset is like, put your head down, do the work. Things are going to come. It worked out for me, worked out for you. It's a, the road's going to be zigzaggy as we get there. I don't know that that works out as much for our students anymore. I and feel so that. There has to be like that middle ground. Like you still got to follow your passion. I, I totally agree. Right? And I agree because again, I mean, we could get into the thing that's the other huge topic mm-hmm. in Denver, which is cost of living, yeah. right? And when I lived here as a teen and then into my early 20s, I paid four fifty a month for my half of a thousand square foot apartment on Cheeseman Park. Mm-hmm. And I could work at Chili's and go to school. However, also my parents helped me pay for school. There's a lot of things in my path that were given to me and that not everybody has. Sure. And so I, I think it's important to acknowledge that as well. But I also agree with you in that it's a tougher place out there in Denver and it's more expensive. And it's just like, it can be hard. It can be very hard. So, so I'm just sympathetic. To yeah, it too. absolutely. So I, I know the follow your dreams attitude is like sometimes just not realistic. Yeah. Um, but do have a little kernel of that to remind you of why you're doing what you're doing. hundred percent. Cause I, I am a big dreamer. I am a, let's think of something that hasn't been thought of before and make the thing you want to see. Do, let's manifest. However, the hell we got to do that. Yeah. Right. Um, so inherently I'm that person, but I also know <laughs> that I benefited from a lot of those things totally. that you talked about to be able to get there. So I never want to shut down the dream of young people to say, no, do the things that matter to you. Do this. We had Gary Streisky, who's another alum who is a sports center broadcast uh, on the podcast oh, cool. earlier, which was great. And his advice, that he would give to everybody is like, 
basically just do it. Follow your dream, put your head down, do the work, take the job, talk to all the people, do what you got to do. Yes. And also there is a reality of like, we got to figure out how we're going to make ends meet in the middle. Some and folks are supporting their families. Correct. Some folks have young families. Some folks live in intergenerational families mm-hmm. where they're in charge of a lot of things that I did not have to be in charge of. Correct. I totally understand that. Yeah. I didn't have my first kid till I was 40. Mm-hmm. I have, I mean, I have friends that had their first kid at 18. I understand how those um, experiences impact what our path looks mm-hmm. like. So I think, yeah, the realism part of it is important as yeah. well. But you got to have the dream. Yeah, you have to have, you have to have the driving dream, whatever that is for you. And for me, it was just, I I realized eventually I just really love the city. Yeah. That's awesome. So, um, so let's talk about the art stuff too. So self-proclaimed artist advocate. Yes. So walk me through what that means to you. And, and first, do you consider yourself an artist? I don't, but other people do. (laughs) I don't consider myself an artist. I mean, I've dabbled in like playing music and doing like collage work and all, you know, we did all the DIY stuff. (laughs) I mean, like we made our own posters and we made our own t-shirts and all that kind of stuff. But, um, for me, I guess the artist advocate role was something I realized, uh, in my probably early twenties where I was like, I actually just like to help other people get seen and heard for their art. And that's just a better role for me. And I had the good fortune of growing up in a family that's extremely supportive of the arts. I bought my first piece of art when I was 10 years old at the pirate art gallery, a Louis Recchia piece that I still have because my parents instilled in me building an art collection is really important And I took that very seriously. My husband and I are both local art collectors specifically. We are highly interested in being able to support the local artists we know while building our own collection because eventually one day I would love to be like, this is Denver. Mm -hmm. This is the Denver I know through the art. And donate that back to him. Oh my God, it'd be awesome. It would be amazing if my children, actually my children (laughs) will probably be like, I am so tired of my parents' weird art. (laughs) Um, But that groundwork that my parents laid for me and uh, my, my dad played in bands when I was a kid and played at our house and I was around bands a lot was just like, this is a life that I like and I understand and I understand the world through art. My parents did not censor what I saw. Mm -hmm. So I've talked about this a little on the show too. I'm a John Waters, Mm -hmm. Paul Rubens. I mean, just like in living color, all these things that were kind of outrageous at the time informed how I see the world which is inherently a very gay world that I am an ally of. (laughs) And it's just how I see things. But part of that was like understanding. Eventually, then we get into these things around are queer artists invited into these spaces. And our Tit Wrench, the festival that I helped co-found, was originally set on like women are not invited to a lot of spaces. Mm -hmm. And then it became queer folks and it became folks who identify as non-binary. It wasn't just women. That was just where we started, I think. Again, I credit my friend Sarah Slater, who's who's the brain, she's the brain mother of Tit Wrench, um, who taught me a lot about DIY booking and the, you know, doing it yourself, putting the show, putting the thing together that you want to see in the world. And that's where Tit Wrench came from was we wanted to see a festival of underrepresented people because we were tired of seeing lineups of all dudes. Sure. Which persists to this day. And we, we, I feel we had a small impact on it. If anything, we created space for folks that weren't being seen or heard. And it's just through that work, I think that I realized that it was important to talk about art and give it the validity that a lot of people don't, especially at the local level and say, artists are telling our story. Artists are doing incredible work. They may be exhibiting in a coffee shop right now, but they might be the person that's at the Guggenheim one day. Right. And you don't know. And the only way they're going to get there is by support from other people. 
and validation from other people, right? right? Like I had this amazing platform. Westward let me write whatever I wanted. It was crazy. Again, credit to Patty Calhoun, my fearless, and the many editors I had there, Dave Herrera, Kyle Harris, Susan Freud, Kieran. I mean, I had so many amazing editors that let me do what I wanted, but I realized how powerful that was. So I started talking about things that weren't getting as much coverage. The DIY scene here in Denver, Rhinoceropolis most famously was this space for a decade that changed my life in ways I cannot express. Your parents don't take you seriously until somebody else thinks your art is good. And so if I was able to write a story that ended up in the print newspaper, people would be like, my parents read that and they finally came to my show. Mm -hmm. They finally believed that I was doing something that was not just a waste of time. What's so funny with that too, especially in the art space, I think that's true probably about just about anything that someone does. Your parents don't realize. If they don't, if it's not in their line of understanding, it's not, yeah. But especially when we look in the artistic industry, it's like, it is all subjective of what is good and bad in so many of these spaces anyhow. So be the cheerleader for your child in exactly. that space. What exactly. are we doing? And you be the one that sets the tone. Cheerleader is exactly how I yeah. describe, like I, jo- I, you know, I had my scene of bands that I saw all the time that were my friends. And I think my good friend, Robin Edwards, she performs as Lisa Prank. She's in this other band called Who Is She? Um, I have followed her career as her friend the whole time. And sometimes I will stand at the front of the stage and scream, you are my favorite band. I love you. I love this band. I truly meant it though. Like I get to see my friend thrive and I feel very honored that I get to call a lot of the artists in this city, my friends. Yeah. They're people that I care for. They're people that care for me. They're people that get my friends, the rare birds take excellent care of my child. Like, and these are just like rapper producer people that somebody might not give the time of day, but if you take five minutes and talk to them, you will be dying to hear the music they make because they are such fascinating people. And I feel very fortunate. My world is surrounded by artists that make my life interesting every day. And so what else could I do, but say someone else should listen to this. Hey, have you heard this? Art scenes, music scenes, any kind of comedy scenes, same thing. If there's no audience, if there's no backstage person running the show, there is no comedy. Mm -hmm. There is no art. So you may not be an artist or a musician, but you're needed. Sure. So every scene needs you. And I don't think even you realize how much you need it too. Even people that- Oh, it gives me purpose. 41 years, I don't think I've ever said to somebody like, oh yeah, you know, and someone's like, oh, I don't like music. Like that doesn't come out. Totally. Music is a way for us to process and feel and talk about emotions in different ways. Art similarly, right? And I get to like, my friend Kaylin Heffernan, um, she is the- She's wheelchair sports camp. That's her band. My husband is her drummer and also like her collaborator. But she, I know her Mm -hmm. songs from the backside. I know where they came from. I know I got to watch her process and make that Mm -hmm. thing. And I bring her up too because um, she's someone that married art and politics in a way that not a lot of people can do. She's one of the most informed people I've ever met on the history of activism. Mm -hmm. And she puts that into her work. And then she, in 2019, said, I want to run for mayor, knowing full well she was not going to win. But how do I bring all of these ideas and thoughts and concerns of my community To to the table? I just have to be the guy. Mm -hmm. And working on that project with her on the mayoral project changed my life. Mm -hmm. It, 
if there's anything that we love to do, it's work together with people. And we don't realize it's something we love to do until we have a big project. Sometimes that big project is your family. For us, it was a political campaign. Maybe it's your band. It's mm-hmm. Maybe it's a play you're writing. But when you get to work together with other people, you start to learn more about the world. And I learned so much from doing that campaign. One thing I did learn, I will never be in politics. <laughs> Just I as saw the hell she right? went through. Yeah. Oh. And she is a tough cookie. And I could not handle half of the things that people said to her as a politician, as a person that was interested in the political process. So I learned I will never be in politics. Yeah. I think, I think that's, there's so many true things you said, but just on the last one, I think about that, like this is supposed to be a a civil service that people want to provide, right? Politicians inherently, when we establish this country, we're not supposed to be career politicians. But the barriers, not just the financial barriers, the pedigree barriers, the, all that kind of stuff, just the simple barrier of not getting the shit kicked out of you every single day yes. when you're talking about things is one that is going to preclude most people from ever trying to do anything. Well, and, and Kaylin is a disability rights activist. She's someone that uses a wheelchair. You want to talk about barriers? Most of civic buildings are not built for her to enter them. Right. And so that goes beyond the physical barrier. That goes into the political barrier of people with disabilities are not seen. So they're not acknowledged. So their rights and their, and their issues are not at the forefront. The ADA was an amazing thing that happened in 1990. Everybody who is able thinks that that solved all the problems Mm. in the world. It barely, Mm -hmm. it's good that it exists, but it is like below a baseline of what is actually needed. And so again, Kaylin is someone that puts herself out there in a way that I am afraid to do. Yeah. And she is in a whole different body and experience that I am. And I'm in a body and experience that can navigate the world without people noticing. She has this part where in one of her songs where she talks about that, she can't go anywhere with someone. Someone will say, God bless you. And she says, but I didn't even sneeze because people (laughs) will be like, oh my God, I bought your dinner because I just, I'm so glad you live in the world. And she's like, I'm just trying to have dinner with my family. Like what the fuck are you doing over? Go away from my table. You know what I mean? But like. So, and when I say my friend is my inspiration, it's because I see behind the scenes and I learn from her. Yeah. And I think, and you're getting a behind the scenes, which is even better. I mean, I go back to even like my, you know, college days of sitting in a bus and, you know, getting the brand new CD of whatever band and then having to go through all the lyrics in the CD case. (laughs) Like these kids have it so easy. (laughs) Just just lyrics, genius it. Then you can be like, "Mm, I don't know about this annotation. (laughs) Right. Is that really what he means? But, but you're right. Like you but you, to, like, you dig. sit there and you dug and you're like, oh, okay. This And then the game, for me, that was such, I, I think I'm inherently, again, curious and just a problem solver. So I try and read lyrics, especially like mystical lyrics and things that are very specifically elusive. Again, most music, not most. A lot of popular music now is so explicitly like, this is what I'm talking about, that it's like, oh, that, what's the fun in me figuring out? Right. It's also where it's written by like 10 songwriters. <laughs> Correct. Or a computer. Max Martin or whatever. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Right. But I feel right. you like the discovery of that music. And that's what's something I, I like to try to translate for folks to why local music matters. Right. You can meet these people. Right. You can become you can these people's the friends. Yeah. You can support them. They yeah. need someone to work their merch table. Yeah. You can become that person. Like, again, the scene is all about the people, not just the artists, but the people. But I feel you. I, I do. I was a digger myself. Yeah, I was I miss, like a I going to the that. library trying to figure out. Yeah. What is this reference? What are they talking about? Why is the about? Smashing Pumpkins first album called Gish? Well, it's named after Lillian Gish, a silent film star. Then I go down this rabbit hole trying right. to figure out who she is. And I'm at the library doing right. it because it's 1997. You're, you're pulling call cards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And all my family's librarians. So I'm asking them to do the research yeah. for me. Yeah. But like, yeah, it's that's the beauty of art, too, though. It is. 
The Earn and Learn program was designed to address equity barriers within experiential learning. This program provides funding to support both undergraduate and graduate students who need financial assistance to participate in unpaid, off-campus internship opportunities. Support the Earn and Learn program today. A donation of any amount helps our students in need. This episode is brought to you by Canadian Geese. Sorry. 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 Anyone who gets in my car or is ever around me when I'm playing music, it stopped at like 2002. Like in terms of what oh, I'm still... Really? I mean, I still oh, listen. I listen to new stuff. And you're bring missing new things out. In. I'm just like, no, I'm good. That, that's it. Like any song, any, I'm good. But, I think there's like studies that like yeah. our brains forming at this time. And that's when these things are so like, like why they stick to us. But well, for me, it too, it attaches, every one of those songs attaches to a very pivotal memory or oh, moment sure. or smell or relationship or this and totally. that. Totally. And I think I've just probably been too happy for too long that I don't have to listen <laughs> to music to like make me feel part of a community that has felt the same thing. Even that's when I stopped writing music too. Like I got married and I was like, oh, turns out I'm content and I have a pretty great life. Uh, I guess I don't have to I write know, music I re- anymore. I revisit it. I think you <laughs> yeah, might be missing You might be things. sad. You should revisit it. Or you might, it. No, you might just be not digging into some no, feelings. I think there's you know? definitely some new music and good things that have come since 2002. Don't get me wrong. But I think I just get so nostalgic in that space where I can identify sure. that that song meant this at that that's moment. That's when you had the biggest feelings. Correct. Right? 100%. And, like, and didn't have the tools to talk about them or explore them, right? I mean, I have a Smashing Pumpkins tattoo that says, happiness will make you wonder, will I feel okay? Like, so emo. What does that even mean? (laughs) Also, I got this tattoo when I was like 27. I wasn't 17. (laughs) Right. But I still listen to that song. It's a line from Rocket and it's like, I get goosebumps thinking about the big feelings I had when I heard that song. And it also drove me to play bass because it's the first time I saw a woman playing a guitar on 120 minutes with a show I watched religiously every Sunday yeah. on MTV when I was a teenager and I saw Darcy Retsky play bass and I was like, dad, what is that? And he was like, that's a bass guitar. I was like, mm-hmm. that's what I want. And he was yep. like, okay. And he took me down to first base on Broadway awesome. and bought me a left-handed bass guitar. And I posed with it for a very long time sure. in the mirror before I actually learned how or taught myself how to play it. Yeah, And, and then I played it the way I wanted to play it. And then it became an instrument that became a weapon in a certain sense because Uh, Being on stage as a woman playing music is inherently political. (laughs) And um, a lot of men wanted to tell me all about what I was doing wrong. And so it became a place where I felt super powerful because Mm -hmm. I was like, you can tell me all you want, bro. Like you're on the floor and I'm on the stage. So (laughs) mic drop. Yeah. (laughs) So like, I know that you think I'm playing my bass wrong. Like I should, someone told me once like bass, real bass players play up here and like, you know, like lift it up Mm -hmm. and like, you know, punk players play Mm -hmm. down here. And I was like, did you ever see Chris Novoselic from Nirvana Mm -hmm. play? It's practically hanging at his knees. And Mm -hmm. that dude's like seven feet tall. Mm -hmm. And guess what? He was in one of the most successful bands of all time. Right. So call me and let me know that's not a real bass player. Right. It's crazy. I haven't thought about it that way, but that women inherently in music on stage is a political statement. And I find myself following probably more female artists these days than male artists just because I think there's... It's amazing. They sing a little... A, A, I want to because I'm like, that's... That's rad. Let's do this. Right. But it's also like it's singing to probably like-minded places that we're coming from, like like experiences at this moment that brings that collective sense of community. 
But I do realize that whether it's local coverage or it's national coverage, anytime a woman does something or says something on stage, it hits the news. And it's like, guys, what are what are we doing? I've been to plenty of concerts featuring a male headliner, male band, whatever. Look at do what the like, same shit. This, and like, it's like, what try that doing? in a small town shit with Jason oh, Aldean. <laughs> think about think about 15 or 20 years ago when the Dixie, Dixie Chicks. Chicks. Uh, yeah. Now the Chicks were like, hey, George Bush sucks, you guys. We're in London also. We're not even in America. And we're right. saying this to you. And that got We're back, sorry. We're from Texas. Ruined their career correct that ruined their career mm -hmm. and i a huge part and of that to me peak, was that like they oh were at God. the highest they were on level every of, again mm -hmm. i saw them on mtv and i heard them on the radio and they yep. were country musicians yep. yeah the backlash and the bias and the radio's just not playing them huge a huge part i think you're wrong about which is one of my favorite podcasts mm -hmm. they do they debunk um these sort of these stories where, mm -hmm. or they, they retell the story of Monica Lewinsky. They retell sure. the story of, they do one on the chicks. Mm -hmm. I'll have to find a link to it. It's great. But at any rate, a huge part of that was they were women. hundred percent. Which is wild. And it's like, it's crazy to think, you know, when I was in a band like 10 years ago, I remember playing a show once in Lawrence, Kansas. First of all, we had a man drummer, Fernando, love you. Greatest. Also, there's a reason you see the same dudes in bands with women all the time because there's only a couple dudes that will play with women sure. in any scene mm -hmm. for some reason, and they're all cool. So Fernando did not do any of the book. He showed up and he played drums. That was his job. We would walk into a venue and they would be like, excuse me, sir, uh, how do you want your inputs? And he'd be like, man, I am not in charge of this band. These women are, they're in charge. Talk to them. And they'd be like, oh, I'll talk to the women. Oh my God. So we're like in- Milady. Yeah, I know. It was a lot. Exactly. I mean, if we got that, it was more right. like a huffy sound yeah. guy who was like, I can't believe I have to deal with you. And we're in Lawrence, Kansas. And we walk into this venue and it is just like all dudes. Mm -hmm. It is all dudes. And we're like, okay, I don't know how this is going to go. We set up to play- we're on the floor. It's like a bar, you know, there's no stage. And this line of men comes and lines around the stage and turns their backs to us. So no one can see us. Playing. Oh, Jesus. This is like 2012. You guys, right. this is not like 1975, yeah. 2012. These men were so upset that we were playing music in public, a punk. Also, we were a punk band that were not girly. And so people were very surprised. Mm -hmm. I once heard a guy tell another guy, don't leave yet, dude. I know you're seeing girls that are setting up right now, but this band rocks the fuck out. They're girls, but they're like pretty but, tough. But, yeah. And I was like, wow, cool. Thank you. That was the response. Mm -hmm was to block other people from seeing us perform. And again, all that did was just motivate Fairy. me to keep doing it and keep Probably opening doors for other yeah. other women, queer yeah. people to come in and do that and stand at the stage and be their biggest fan. Yeah. So that guy has to like sit with himself yeah. and think a little bit about why am I so upset? I don't think he spent that time. I'm sure he did having that interest. I'm sure thought. he didn't. He's his music taste sucks though. Probably. probably. So, Obviously. You know, fuck yeah. that guy. <laughs> it, it's true though. This idea that everything inherently becomes political when women are doing it because it makes uh, a large portion of the the population that has held the power for so long, uh -huh. so uncomfortable. We're seeing the same thing happening in sports, right? You talk oh. about like women, the women's soccer equal pay fight. First of all, that lasted way too long. And as somebody who is like, I teach a legal studies course here. So like deeply invested in the filings, the claims, all this stuff. I'm like, first of all, the first round of when they lost initially, <laughs> hearing what the judges had to say about oh. women's soccer versus, I was like, I can't believe you say that. Then you're hearing the, the head of United States soccer so their boss, effectively, basically being like, yeah, but you're women. 
all they're doing is asking for equal pay, but we turned it into a political extravaganza. Oh, I know Fox News batted it around. Like, I was like, is this... Really? Right. But yet go read a book. We have men that are sitting in the NFL right now that are holding out on training camps because they are fighting for more of what they believe to be equitable in terms of their contract. Then it's like good for him or this and that. He's going to get what's due. Right. But women just simply all have to collectively bargain, too, because at this point it is an entire group of people had to come together to be heard loud enough. And then it took it honestly took a lot of female owned businesses and other female companies and corporations big enough to make it a big enough splash. But even like at the end of this World Cup, obviously, the United States national team doesn't do well. They exit very early. And some of the political responses to it was like, that's why girls couldn't do it. Yeah. Why don't you, you know, get your head out of politics and keep it in the kitchen kind of bullshit. And it's just like, and you're like, what year is it? It it drives me irate. And it's just one of those things where it's like, every time you feel like you're making steps forward, you just get thrown back because power is so threatening. And again, I have to say something I learned from working with Kaylin and working with the disability community was you think it's hard for you. They have seen some shit and they keep going. Mm -hmm. They keep going. They keep fighting. They keep fighting. A brand new building gets built without an elevator. (laughs) And they're like, well, we're back at it again. We're back at it again. We're Mm -hmm. back at it again. And that's what I just have been motivated by is equal rights for everybody is it's a possibility. Right. And you have to keep pushing. Mm -hmm. And another thing I learned from Kaylin is there's this great writer and philosopher, Adrienne Marie Brown, And she talks about the pleasure of the revolution. How do we make the revolution pleasurable? How do we look for the things that make us excited and happy to push forward? And it's just thinking about the better future that you're creating for somebody else. And that's the other part is collectively thinking about who can benefit from this that's not me. Someone that's not me is going to benefit because I'm going to be long gone. And that's that's why I'm doing it. (laughs) That's actually good. Yeah. And I actually, I do think that women are likely set up right now to have, be the most powerful voice in that kind of thinking because it's not that far gone in our history and it still is not solved. But to be able to say, we didn't have voting rights. We didn't have these rights. We didn't have that. We came a long way. Now we're in a now, weird place. Now where, what do we, but how also do we continue to open that door? Correct. Right. So like, we're still in a place where like, yeah, there's this and that. Now we're fighting. Now we don't control our bodies apparently. Oh my right. God. All of these things. Other- but it's, it's recent enough in our history and in our knowledge to be able to say, okay, so now whose door do we open next? Right. Totally. Right? So I think we can be a very powerful population to move the needle on what that more and utopian I, future looks like. I would also right? just say too, when we talk about allyship, like um, men listening to this too, is like, you can just show up for people. Right. You don't have to be the loudest voice, by the mm-hmm. way, in the room, but you can just show up. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times that was a huge part for us as a band was that our dude friends showed up mm-hmm. for us. And faced you, right? And fa- yeah. <laughs> and bought our shirts and booked sure. us on shows and, you know what I mean? Treated us as equals, which right. a lot of venues still did not. Yeah. Um, but building those allyships with dudes who were cool with playing music with women. Yeah. That's rad. All of it. I'm just going to say that's rad at the end of every segment because I'm like, that's what this is. It's fucking rad. Right on. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Coolio. Um, yeah. My gosh. So you've got your pulse on the city of Denver. Um, what are the things that you're looking forward to in probably the next five to 10 years? And what are the things that we should raise as red flags as things we need to start addressing now? I mean, I think one of the biggest things, again, going back to the role of art in our city is we have a lot of money for art right now. 
We're seeing a lot of money being put towards the arts and we're seeing representation in our larger institutions that we've never seen before. So if you think about the reopening of the Sand Creek Massacre exhibit at History Colorado, that was a 10 years in the making project with direct descendants of the Sand Creek Massacre having a voice and a stake at the table. Desert Rider, one of the best exhibits I've ever seen in my entire life at the mm-hmm. Denver Art Museum right now is a representation of Chicano, indigenous, and Mexican culture in the Southwest as it relates to transportation. But mm-hmm. what you see in it is one of my favorite artists of all time. Nani Vachacon is from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and she does these beautiful pieces of lowriders and like lowrider women, but like she does it in this way that's so powerful and seeing that in a museum Mm -hmm. is like blowing my mind that we are in a city that is is open to that it doesn't mean there isn't a lot of stuff behind the scenes we still need to work on because Mm -hmm. i know a lot of artists are still struggling with getting themselves heard in these bigger institutions but i think we're on the way so i would say in 10 years i think we're going to be even more renowned for our art scene but i think by then our local artists will have also been able to cross cross that threshold into being taken as seriously as people like me have taken them for a long time. And I'm not the first person. I mean, there's, we have arts critics here who have been talking about our art scene for a long time. There's gallerists, there's artists themselves. I think that's just something to watch. And I think that it's something that Denver will be known for. I worry about our housing situation. I don't see it getting better. I don't, I don't see the real issues being addressed when it comes to the price of how much it costs to live here. And that was one of the biggest benefits to growing up in the city. And the reason in part why I got to be able to do the things I did was I was not paying through the nose for my rent. Yeah. And if I didn't have to work as much to pay my rent, I was able to work on my community projects and my art projects and community will build no matter what, but it just gets harder and harder when the pressure is on us to have something that should be a human right, which is housing. So that's where I'm extremely disappointed in my city. And I want more folks that are housed to care more than we do Yeah, because it's very easy to other people once we're inside our four walls and say, well, sucks to be them, but I did this and I got here and realizing a lot of that is privilege. A lot of that is luck. Um, a lot of that is just having the pieces in place in your puzzle without having them knocked out by mm-hmm. addiction or abuse or other traumas in the world. And uh, I just worry. I think Denver is not on a good track. I, I'm, I'm giving our mayor, our new mayor, the benefit of the doubt. He's He's, only, he's moving the needle he right is, now. He literally has only been in office right. since July. So like, let's give Johnston a little bit of a right. break, but he's made some big promises and we are all watching. Yeah. It is not one mayor's job to do this. It takes everyone, mm-hmm. but he is the face of our leadership. And is articulating some plans at this point, which yes. again, hopefully they succeed, but it's going to take but everybody getting behind But we've got to talk about him. the mm-hmm. private market and what it yeah. costs to buy a house here and what it costs to build a house here or the, the neighborhoods that are vehemently against affordable housing. Mm -hmm. Like we got to get right with ourselves. It's just not a good sign of a healthy city. If we're not helping our most vulnerable people do something basic, like live, live. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I I couldn't agree more. Um, And it's, it's funny, even as I was listening to some of the language you were using and some of the ways that we talk about the excuses that we hear as to why it's not on the top of our list, or it is very, very similar and and very much how we've even thought about higher education over time. Like so much of what we hear from when we talk about, because we have similar 
arguments, uh, not arguments, um, conversations, uh, heated conversations uh, all the time about uh, funding for higher education. And we hear the same things like, oh, well, I could do this. I did that. We hear that all the time. I go, yep. But why? But 50 years ago, it cost $1,200 to go to school. To live, this, to do all of that. Yes. We're not talking about that space. And that $1,200 was probably, I think we said 25 years ago, 30 years ago, 80% of the tuition at a place like MSU Denver, yeah, a state institution, was definitely. paid for by the state. And 20% was paid for as individuals. So that is pennies on the dollar that we're playing. Flip it now to 2023, and that is totally opposite. And all this it's like stuff is not caught up. Is, right. And so when we have, even having these conversations at the legislative level, and we talk about the funding model, because we do believe that this institution provides so many opportunities to combat pretty much anything that Denver and Colorado could be facing. We're educating the next generation of Coloradans, mm. right? We stay here. These are going to be your future leaders of business, leaders in the civic space, whatever that case might be. It is a totally different mentality. And just because 40 years ago, it only cost you to go to school and you worked a summer job and was able to pay tuition (laughs) for it. And I'm working full time and still trying to do that. Like, so there's just this, this barrier. It is. There's this huge dissonance and a disconnect between this idea of what was and what is. And just the reality. And like, it's like all comes down to access. Right. And I'm hearing the same excuses when we talk about the unhoused population and and the issues come, well, I can do this. I can work a job and I can have a house. And it's like, guys, just because you can doesn't mean that everybody I bought a house because my father-in-law paid our down payment. Right. Right. How do we do that? Generational wealth. Right. Like, hello. Yeah. So we got to get past the everything is an attack on the way that I did something. Because that's where it comes from, right? There has to be a sense of insecurity of like, well, if we're going to give that away, we hear about it with even like the student loan forgiveness stuff that's happening oh now. Oh my like, gosh, how that da- is so how, crazy How dare me. you take away their, I paid my student loans. Well, great. I know, and I'm just what, like, why are, why are you, are you just like really cheering for people to be in debt? That's weird. Right. Why are we always making a a public policy issue about me? I think, I think the the... The silver lining is we're coming back around to the yeah. importance and the strength of community. Yeah. And when we don't just hyper-focus on the individual and our individual selves and our individual wealth and our individual everything, and we think more about the collective. Um, and I think people are really dying for that. They are. Like we weren't meant to raise children alone mm-hmm. in our homes. We were not meant to age alone. Mm-hmm. Like we weren't meant to do these things that we do. And I think folks are coming around to that idea and thinking, how do we live more collaboratively and collectively? And it sounds like real hippy-dippy, but like I lived in a communal space for seven years and- yeah. It was incredible. It's not hippy-dippy. It is the basis of— It's just reality. And it's the basis of every piece of evidence that we have coming from an archaeological standpoint, whether you're looking at civilizations we don't have any writings about. When we find them, we realize people lived in a community. It's a collective. Those things are all there. Technology has been great for this— for this world in so many reasons, but it has been so horrible and isolating because it has allowed us to think we can do it on our own. Yeah. And we can't, we shouldn't online. And that's a whole other conversation. Young people are, and that'll be episode two. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) In the seven part series, (laughs) seven part series of why everything sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We talked a little bit about uh, mayor Johnston and kind of his, um, being right on the front end of the start of his campaign, but uh, knowing what you know about the scene of Denver, um, where we've been, where we're going, what are some of the political things on the horizon, especially those that may inform the communities that we serve here at MSU Denver, higher education that we should be in on the watch for? We've talked about this on my show that the mayor doesn't have a direct uh, overseeing of DPS 
in Denver, but it's definitely a part of the political conversation. And I think if we've seen anything over the last couple of years, it's that there's a lot of dysfunction in our school board. And then that translates to some dysfunction in how our schools run. And that's not directly their fault. I'm just saying like, there's a lot that seems to be wrong. And as a person that lives in a neighborhood that is having schools closed and thinking about my son who is pre preschool age, but eventually I'm going to want him to go to my neighborhood school because I want him to be in community. Is that going to be an option anymore? And I just wonder if we're failing our kids before they even get to thinking about college. But there's that, there was that study that um, Denver schools are more segregated now than they were 50 years ago. And this is all like sort of by our choices. And so I think that that's something that the city is going to be grappling with over the next, uh, it has been. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember walkouts when I was in school at George in the Mm nineties, we have been continuing to talk about this, but that's something I've just started thinking about more as a parent. And I think it's something that folks, even who don't have kids in the school system should be thinking about is how are we setting our children up for success? How are we connecting them to their communities so that they have an authentic experience in education that reflects where they know where they're from and what they learn. And before they even think about school, that feels like something that I think is going to be addressed. I don't know how I'm curious how the school board elections will go. Again, it's something I think we struggle to get folks on board with because if you don't have kids in the school system, kind of why would you care? But the health of our city depends on how well our children are doing, right? I mean, they're they're one of the most vulnerable populations because they have to rely on adults to do <laughs> to the make right thing. Yeah. And Johnson comes from the education space too. So mm-hmm. I'd be curious what what he's gonna do in that realm. I mean the other thing that crisscrosses every single demographic is just uh, substance misuse and folks dying. Yeah. Folks are dying. Mm-hmm. Fentanyl is a problem. Criminalizing it has not worked. Um, folks that listen to my show know I'm an advocate for the Harm Reduction Action Center. I believe people who use drugs should be able to live every day and for a better day tomorrow. Does that mean we have more money put towards recovery programs or transitional housing for folks? That would be great. That's part of our housing problem. I don't know about you, Jamie. I'm on medication for depression. If that was not regulated, if I didn't have a therapist and you know, I was, I'm on medication, I also have a safe home. I could, I may be in a different place. And when you see somebody having a mental health crisis on the street, remember, what if they were having that in their home? It would be different, but you're seeing them in this very vulnerable place. And I mean, mental health and drugs intersect. They're not the same thing. Homelessness and drug use intersect. Also not the same thing. We're seeing all these different things, but I think at the baseline, we've got to, we've got to deal with the fact that criminalizing drug use and making housing unattainable are two big things that we could probably solve. Things we can control. That Yeah. And I imagine that will impact higher education at mm-hmm. some point when like, I, I don't know how many stories I've read of unhoused folks who were on that path. Mm-hmm. I was getting my degree or I was doing this and then I lost my, I got evicted and then everything went downhill from yeah. there. So I think that that's an everybody mm-hmm. conversation is housing, how we treat mental health and how we treat people who use drugs. Just be better, you know? I have a little bit of faith too. Um, I was talking to my friend Lisa at the Harm Reduction Action Center and she said that Mike Johnson came and visited the center recently. So maybe he's interested in the work that they're doing, which is keeping people alive. Well, and it's also, it's a smart and a savvy move to double down on the things that are working. Yeah. Right? Don't We don't have to come into be the new person, whether it's a new 
faculty member on campus. It's a new, there's, you know, boss in whatever situation. There's you great have to ideas. Build, it, yes. build upon the things. That already um, exist. The Harm Reduction so Action Center, if it could be open 24 hours a day and have a housing component, if they had the funding to do that, it would be life-changing for the city because a lot of their folks you see on the streets every sure. day. So maybe if they had a place to be where they were safe, <laughs> you wouldn't see them on the streets. Yeah. And they don't want to be on the streets either. Right. It's, a, it's just a constant for the city. It's almost like you could talk about this every week on a it's podcast. It's almost like I talk about it almost <laughs> every day of my life because I care. Yeah. We I just want people yeah. to stay alive. Well, the passion is you know? uh, evident for sure. Thanks. We talked a lot about the art scene uh, and some of the you know controversies uh, in Denver in general, but could you uh, walk us through the Pat Mulberry situation? Sure. And I don't know Pat personally, so I just want to put that out there. First of all, my first response is I don't go after artists. They don't hold the power. They're not the people in charge of the money. Um, I do remember a specific incident, though, where on the west side of Denver, on Santa Fe, which is our historic west side, which is the epicenter of the Chicano Civil Rights Movement, something that came out of that that continues today, there's a Leo Teguma piece in this building right now, is the art of the movement continues to this day, and it is this Chicano futurism. A lot of it is telling the story of the ideal world. And there's, there was a Love the City mural on Santa Fe, and I know it got repeatedly tagged by someone I know who is a West Sider. And I think it was less pointed at the artist and more at the idea that – and I remember Lucha Martinez de Luna who runs the uh, Chicano Murals Project. I went on a West Side murals tour with her, and she stopped and talked about this specifically. And she was like, the fact that the city would fund this piece in a neighborhood yeah. – that has historically been marginalized, arrested. I mean, they got arrested for painting murals in their own projects. It, the history of art as protest on the West Side is so strong that the reaction to that piece felt, I think the piece felt, I don't want to speak for the West Side mm -hmm. community either, but I think to me, I interpreted it as an affront to the work that they had done and the fact that they have been ignored and kind of beaten down by the city for using their own spaces to do murals. And then the city pays for somebody who's outside of the community to do a mural in this central area of the community. So again, this is not about Pat Milbury to mm -hmm. me. This is about what the city chooses to fund and what they don't. Now I will say they have made strides in that piece has been painted over by the way. The city has made strides in recent years to correct some of that. However, I will credit the Chicano Murals Project and Lucha for continuing to be a critical eye on that because so many of our murals have not been saved, the historical pieces. And understanding that sometimes art is ephemeral in a certain way, it just is part of this very complicated fabric of gentrification and that's where artists also get put in the middle of this thing that is out of their control. I, I've been very critical of the Crush, the murals festival. It's now, I think it's now called the Rhino Mural Festival or something. But early on, this art district was paying artists to come in and do graffiti in areas where graffiti artists had been repeatedly arrested for doing graffiti. Sure. And it's this very complicated topic that, again, I speak to as an observer I'm an observer of the graffiti movement and world and community. My brother is a very prominent graffiti artist here in Denver. Uh, if folks know, they know. A lot of folks don't. But I've watched and learned from him and some of the, the world of graffiti. His friends are some of the most fascinating, interesting, thoughtful, 
philosophers, they have ideas about the city. They have ideas about what they're doing in the world, but it's a very complicated place. And the Chicano murals project is trying to capture and save and uplift the history of it. And when the city pays for something that is not directly from community in community, it feels like a diss, honestly. So artists do not have the power here. They are often almost used by uh, say a developer, like come do a cool mural in my lobby. And like, you might see a mural by someone I love in a new building that no one can afford to go in. But you know what? That artist got a gig Mm -hmm. and they got paid and I want them to get paid. And if I tell artists anything, it's take that money. Cause if you don't, somebody else will. Now, if you have conflicting morals about a particular project, stand by your morals and stand by what you believe in. But I never believe that this is the artist's fault. Artists don't have power. Like they do in their own way, but like not in this situation where it's the city versus developer versus a bunch of money. Pat Milbury probably got paid. Good for him. He got paid to do a piece. It it doesn't mean that he's immune from the criticism. I just think that the direction of the criticism needs to be focused more on the money. So that's where I stand on it. And again, I don't speak for the West Side community. I don't speak for the Chicano community by any means. This is all that I've inferred through um, research that I've done and uh, direct information given to me by artists and uh, members of the community themselves. Direct your ire in the right places and realize that artists are generally not the people making the decisions for the city. That's awesome. So, uh, so Brie, we are going to finish up with our rapid fire questions, me, me, which me. are scary and rapid and on fire. Okay. Uh, they're not lit. They're just rapid. They're fire. not lit. Mm-hmm. Great. I you will never hear me say that. that <laughs> would be embarrassing and weird. <laughs> exactly. Our first one is: What is your favorite MSU Denver memory? Oh my gosh! It was funny when I walked up here. I like got the like school jitters where I was like, oh, I remember coming here with my paper schedule and being like, what basement building is this? No, that's not my favorite memory. <laughs> um, you know, I don't, that's a tough one. I, I, I spent so much time here, but I didn't value it in the same way. I would say it's not a memory as much as I learned after the fact what our area was mm-hmm. and the fact that this was a community mm-hmm. that predated Denver and that we voted as a city to demolish it. Again, this is not a happy memory, mm-hmm. but learning that taught me so much about the importance of history and interweaving it with the fact that now this place exists that's really incredible. How do we honor both of those things at the same time? I'm very proud to be a Metro graduate. I'm also very bummed out that my city made that decision before I was born. How do we see both of those things? Well, we go to Casa Mayan and we we admire the building that was Casa Mayan and we admire the space that that was and we respect that space. But also then I think about the gratitude I have for having an affordable college in my city that I was able to go to in the late 90s as a 17-year-old. I was 17 when I started here and um, I was welcomed. So- it's less a memory and more of a I'm thankful for. It's a feeling. And okay. And feelings are valid here. Thanks. <laughs> what does it mean to you to be a roadrunner? It's so, so funny. <laughs> Again, not cool when I went here. And now all of a sudden I'm like driving by. I'm like, check out this campus, everyone. I went to school here. Never mind that most of these buildings weren't here yet. But this was my school. Again, it's a city college. I could not. 
it it like interweaves into my story in a way that I didn't think about at the time. But I am a Denver person through and through. I went to the city college in the middle of Denver. I am so proud of that. And I think about the future generations and that they their perspective is different than mine. And then I think about my mother. Again, she went here in the 70s and it was a storefront. It was a small college, but she respected and appreciated it so much that I feel proud that my mom, Brooke Pettigrew at the time, graduated from the same school that I graduated from. Yeah. And she's been a nurse for 50 years. Oh, congratulations. She came back and got her degree, her bachelor's degree here while I was in high school. No kidding. And she was able to come back as a mom of four kids in her 40s and go to school again. And then I was able to do that when I was 17. That, I think, speaks to what makes this place really special. And, and I'd love to say that yours is unique because um, it is, obviously. But, but I don't but think it necessarily so, is. But we hear so many ones that are similar you know? in that space. And that's what I love, that it's like the, the, the par for the course is something along those lines. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's it's fun. All right, so this is our last one. Uh, if you could put a billboard on campus <laughs> with a piece of advice for all students to see, what would it say? Oh my gosh! Oh my god, that's so hard. This feels like so corny. Where it's like, follow your dreams. <laughs> Do the shit that someone told me you told you you were bad at. Do it <laughs> anyway. That's what I would say. <laughs> Just like ignore anyone that tells you you're not good enough or you don't belong. Ignore those people and do exactly what you want to do. Because I was told many times, girls shouldn't do that. Girls don't do that. Girls don't do that. Well, guess what? Girls are in thrash bands and that just happens. Sorry. Not sorry. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. I thought you were going to ask me a question about green chili, and I was like, oh, God. Uh, no, I could. I have, like, the worst mm -hmm. choice. I don't, I'm not a spicy person, so I go to yeah. El Noah Noah for the least <laughs> spicy chili. Sorry, El Noah Noah. I love you guys. You're my favorite Colorado Mexican food restaurant in the city, but it's because I can handle, it's not chubby's level, which is. You can handle the heat I there. can't handle <laughs> chubby's. I like cry. One time I accidentally got a spicy burrito at chubby's and I cried so hard and I was scraping my tongue and I looked at my husband. I was like, why do people do this? Why do they eat this? And he was like, I, I'm eating it. It's fine. I don't know what your problem is. So. I'm the same though. I don't like the spicy. And I just think to myself, but why? Like you can't taste the food. I want to taste. It's the, the one thing that makes me feel like not a Denverite. Yeah. Well, can't handle the spice. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. This is great. This was awesome. Thank you. I never get to be on this side of the I mic. Know. I love it. I know. Thank you. Well, this has been so much fun. I can't oh thank God. you enough. I could do this for a seven-part series, so <laughs> mark your calendars. Um, but it has been a very, very big pleasure and an exciting time to be able to chat with you. I love hearing the way you speak about MSU Denver. Um, and I love, I think the most I love is that you didn't see it when you were here, but you see it now. And I think having that sense of kind of closure on that even makes you a bigger advocate and a bigger, um, you know. Sometimes we don't yeah. know what it's like when we're in it. Mm -hmm. And then we step out of it and go, man, that was, I, there couldn't be a better thing to happen to me. That was rad. Yeah, that was totally radical. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Bird Talk, special accommodation provided by University Advancement. Thank you to Ruby Matheny, Brandy Rideout, Heather Holzbauer-Schweitzer, and Andy Schlichting. Production provided by David Sharman, and I'm your host, Jamie Hurst. Keep running, roadies. <laughs>